Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions, like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and this is The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman, and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We're going to break down the first two games of both league championship series and look forward to games three through five of both series. But first, I would like to direct you to TheRinger.com. It's a website that hosts The Ringer podcast network, of which The Ringer MLB Show is a part. Uh, let me point you towards Ringer NBA Preview Palooza, which is happening tomorrow, which is a full day's worth of live video with Bill Simmons, Juliet Lippman, Chris Ryan, Jason. And Concepcion, Shea Serrano, Kevin O'Connor, and the rest of the NBA crew, all culminating in a watch along of the Sixers versus Celtics opening night game. I regret that I won't be able to participate in this, but I was told that watching a Sixers Celtics game with me would be, quote, dangerous. So best of luck to everybody participating with that. We hope you follow along. I also would like to direct you to a bonanza of feature articles on interesting NBA bigs. Haley O'Shaughnessy wrote about Hassan Whiteside. That's up today. And Jordan Kahn on Ennis Cantor uh, went up over the weekend. So if you haven't gotten to that, uh, I definitely recommend both of those stories. Lots of great reporting, lots of great stories in there. But now back to baseball. We've got plenty to talk about with Zach Cram and Ben Limber. All right. As has become customary, I am joined by not one, but two guests. And we'll talk about the whole of the baseball landscape together from New York City, Ben Lindbergh. Hello. And from Los Angeles, our Max Muncy, because he came in late, Zach Cram. Hello. So let's start with the series that started first. We've been going American League first. Let's flip it up a little bit. Uh, The Brewers and Dodgers have played a pair of one-run games and split them. Craig Council noted after game two that both games ended with the tying run and scoring position. This has been a pretty close series, and yet very strange, comprehensively strange. So let's start there. (laughs) Yeah, it really couldn't be closer, right? Because we've seen two one-run games that went in opposite directions, and it all has come down to the Brewers' bullpen being bad, but also good at hitting. <laughs> I guess the Brewers' hitters, Brewers' pitchers are good, but not as good at pitching as we thought, other than Wade Miley. Anyway, it's been a weird one. I think the the Brandon Woodruff homer off Clayton Kershaw, one of the more improbable events that we've ever seen, sort of set the tone for the series. And the Brewers' bullpen has been porous, but Wade Miley was amazing, and the Dodgers have had a whole lot of bench machinations, which I'm sure that we will discuss. I mean, the the most single most surprising thing has to be the Brandon Woodruff home run. Um, but apart from that, I really developed a new appreciation for Wade Miley in Game Two. I it was surprising not only his. I think more than anything else is two-way performance. Uh, I think we have to start talking about Wade Miley in the same uh, tones and verbiage we used to describe Shohei Otani nowadays after uh, after his performance on Saturday. But it was interesting to see. It was, you know, I called it on Saturday a classic junk baller's performance because it was everything just a little bit faster or slower, just a little bit off one direction or the other from where the hitters expected it. Um, you know, Dave Roberts seemed to think that 
that Matt Kemp was going to really tee off on on Miley and Miley really had Kemp in particular under control. And a lot of those righties who uh, you'd expect to uh, to really have Miley's number, it, it was just broken bat after broken bat and soft ground balls and and soft pop ups. And it was just really impressive to see him you know, stay one step ahead of the competition. So that's I mean, that's a standout performance to the point where I can't be- I can't believe they lost that game. Like, yeah. it just feels unjust to have Wade <laughs> Miley deliver that and then lose. And, you know, coming into the series, I would have said that this was a really nightmare matchup for Miley because last year around this time, I wrote an article about how the Dodgers were a bad fit for Dallas Keuchel because Dallas Keuchel's whole game is predicated on throwing pitches outside of the strike zone and getting people to chase. And I looked at selective hitters who faced Keuchel last year and they were great against him because they just didn't chase those pitches. They took them, they walked, and against aggressive guys, he tends to be really good. And Wade Miley is exactly the same sort of pitcher that Dallas Keuchel is. So in theory, the ultra-selective Dodgers, who had the lowest chase rate in the majors this year, should have just been able to wait him out and kind of diffuse the approach that works so well for him. But exactly the opposite happened. So I guess I can just copy and paste my Keuchel article into a, a new article on our site if we end up with another Astros-Dodgers series. But that just shows you how much I know. It's kind of an extension of Miley's whole season. We, I, I can't imagine we've talked about him on this podcast before, but <laughs> uh, in 80 and two-thirds innings, he had a 2.57 ERA. I'm going to run down the leaderboard among pitchers with at least 80 innings this year as a starter, uh, just starting at number six. You go Trevor Bauer, Aaron Nola, Justin Verlander, Max Scherzer, Wade Miley, Walker Buehler, Clayton Kershaw. Is Wade Miley anywhere near as good as any of those pitchers? Of course not, but he's been succeeding the whole season. This after two consecutive years with an ERA over five. So I admit I haven't watched too many of his starts, but when I have, it's been kind of this smoke and mirrors performance where you keep expecting it not to last, but we're running out of time and it's maintained thus far. Yeah, so what's interesting about Miley's performance this year as opposed to years past is he's developed the the cutter. And it's something, you know, he threw more than 40% of the time uh, this year after hardly throwing it at all. And maybe that's just the thing that allowed everything to click. Um, you know, it's just one extra weapon to to uh, to use against opposite hand and batters to keep hitters guessing. I mean, we saw so many... It It's almost like, you know, you, you'd think that the Dodgers would, would be be able to wait him out, but they're only human. Like if they see something that looks like a meatball, they're going to swing from their heels at it. And, you know, David Freese in the first innings, really the only guy who squared him up that I can remember. Uh, and Lorenzo Cain had to make that incredible catch. Um, but it, it was just, it just broke. It was just broken bat after broken bat. And it was incredible to watch just that, that cutter boring in on guys and Miley set up. I mean, I think they took him out at the right time. You just could sort of, suspect that the the gig was going to or that the gag was going to stop working uh at some point in the future and I think Corbin Burns at least going into the um going into the the series you'd think he'd be the perfect guy to bring in right after him just because of how different a look he gives you but it's astonishing that they lost that game like when you get something like that you can't lose that game you just can't Yeah, well, at least there's maybe some benefit down the road in that the Brewers don't go into this series or any game in this series expecting to get that kind of length from their starter, and they plan around that. But if they do get it, 
then at least you give the bullpen a little bit of a break, which is important because in the first game, Gio Gonzalez went two innings. You had to piece together the whole rest of the game with the bullpen. We know that the middle three games of the series are on consecutive days, so there's no break there. Game four looks like it's probably going to be another bullpen game, so you know that you're going to have to stretch there. So maybe just saving a couple innings there that you didn't really expect to get from Wade Miley is a kind of victory that helps you later, even though they would have preferred an actual victory. I don't know that that, that matters as much going into an off day, and particularly because if, if Gonzalez is only throwing two innings, you can bring him back on short rest for, for game four if you need to and you know move the rotation around pretty much however you want to. Um, they plan that game out like no matter how good Gio Gonzalez was pitching, he was only going two or three innings in game mm-hmm. one. And they were just going to let Miley go until until Craig Council saw something that, that told him to to take him out, you know, up to the five and two thirds innings that he pitched. So you still have to come away with this disappointed that you didn't get more out of the bullpen. And they've been at the verge of, of bringing in um bring in some of some of the uh, lower leverage guys, you know, they got that far out in front in game one and they were at a point where um, they were starting to warm up some of the the guys outside the traditional five or six man core that they've been using in high, high leverage. So having the rest would help a little bit, but they use Burns, Knable and Jeffers anyway. So I don't know how big an advantage that's going to be. Yeah. And I think how Craig Council adjusts to what happened in the first two games is important, especially given that games three, four, and five are all consecutive, and Josh Hader is essentially not pitching on consecutive days at this point. He, I think, as good as the rest of the bullpen is, it just looks different in game two when you know Hader isn't coming in. He pitched three innings in game one, and dating back to the play-in game against the Cubs, he has pitched in five games, gone seven and a third innings, not a lot of runs, struck out 11. He is, I think, a clear separation between him and even the the other top tier members of this Brewers bullpen. So if he, the Brewers are planning for a bullpen game in game four, for instance, you might want to save Hater for a few innings in that game, but that means you don't get him in game three or game five, really, which yeah. matters at this point. I think you got to throw him for multiple innings. Maybe not three innings this time. Maybe you throw him for about 30 pitches in game three and bring him back for game five, and then you have the off day for game six and seven. I don't think you can use him in game four. Because the way that he needs to be stretched out, used over multiple innings, and then rested, you know, I'd, I'd go back to Geo in game four and then try to do something similar to game one and maybe use Burns in that that long roll that, uh, that Hater filled up. Uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what they do because a lot of my optimism about the Brewers going into this series was based on they could just take five inning chunks out of, out of the game with that bullpen and just lock it down. And that's not been the case so far. And I don't know how much, you know, I, I don't know that, that Jeremy Jeffers is useless now. I don't think I'd use him for multiple innings and in sort of a fireman role, the, the way he's been used in the first two games. You know, I'd maybe try to use him a little more like a traditional closer and just give him one clean inning um, or one, one inning with the bases clear. But I, I don't know how much Craig council feels like he has to adjust his, uh, uh, his tactics. I mean, he knows 
how all of his players feel. He knows their levels of fatigue way better than than we do on the outside. And, you know, it's possible he just doesn't have another choice. Mm -hmm. And he said coming into the series, like, these are the guys who got us here. So obviously we're going to continue to use them. And I think that's wise. You don't want to look at shaky bullpen performance in two games and prioritize that over the previous six months, which is how they ended up in this position. There is a, a tendency, I think, to put a lot of weight on that recent performance, especially because it matters so much at this time of year. And just because as a spectator, when you're watching it and someone is not going well, it's 10 times more painful when it's happening in a playoff series. So you just want that guy off your screen. But I think the Brewers kind of have to stick to what they're doing and you have to trust the larger sample while at the same time being mindful of the fatigue possibility because a lot of these guys have been worked pretty hard to get here. Now, not all of them. I mean, the Brewers bullpen has gotten reinforcements as the season has gone on. They've got healthy Knabel, they've got Soria, they've got Woodruff and Burns. So this bullpen has kind of been rebuilt on the fly. It's not just Hayter and Jeffress just being worked as hard as they were all year. But it's looked a little shaky. I don't think we should abandon what we thought coming into this series, which is that this is the strength of the team. And I think it will continue to be. And there's one other good reason. I mean, the other good reason for Council to stay the course. And, you know, even though everybody except Hayter and Woodruff really has looked shaky at one time or another so far in the first two games of this series, um, it's one game or two games. And you, like you said, you can't overreact. But even if you do, like the one thing that people keep saying about Craig Council as a manager is he's a steady, calming presence. And if mm -hmm. he changes stuff, it's going to look like panic. And that's going to. Like the the thing you can't do as the de facto underdog in this series is panic. You've got to look like you know what you're doing at all times if you're Craig Council. So I expect him to if he makes changes uh, to the ordering or or his his rotation or or anything like that. I you know he's placed a, a great. Uh, He's, he's prized his flexibility. You know, when he said that Chassin was going to start game three, he's said over and over and over that, that that's penciled in. He could come in in relief if the situation dictates it. So I, you know, I think he's going to lean very hard on Chassin in the next few games. We could see him come out of the bullpen in game five or game six. Um, you could see him starting on short rest in game six. So I, if there is a game six, I imagine at this point there will be. It certainly doesn't look like either team's going to uh, take all three games in LA, but he's, put himself, I think, in a good position where he's gotten buy-in from these guys where they trust him. And, you know, for that, for that reason, I don't think he's going to make any drastic changes because drastic changes would, you know, would be bad for morale, if nothing mm -hmm. else. And there's only so much you can do. The yeah. roster is set. It's not like there's a, a healthy Jimmy Nelson that they can pull out of their sleeve or something. Like they're stuck with the guys that they have and the guys that they have do not constitute a great starting rotation. So this is what they have to do. And what's interesting about this looking from both teams' perspectives is that Heading into the series, we thought the strengths matching up would be the Dodgers rotation versus the Brewers bullpen. It's been flipped almost. Neither Kershaw nor Ryu has made it through the fifth inning. And I'm kind of surprised the Dodgers bullpen has held up as well as it has uh, given the workload it's had to manage. And I think I was the high person on the Dodgers bullpen going into the series. But they've only given up two runs, both solo homers from their lower leverage relievers. But Jansen looked good in his one appearance. Pedro Baez has looked good. Dylan Flores pitched well. So maybe that won't hold up, but they've managed to keep the Brewers at hold in the late innings. I'm still not wild about the Dodgers bullpen on the whole, although I 
I do feel a lot better about Jansen uh, than I did a couple days ago. Um, maybe that's just you know watching uh, Jeffress walk in a run and Craig Kimbrell crumble in uh, Game Four of the Division Series. Just seeing an elite closer not walk the world uh, is is encouraging. Um, I don't know what Julio Urias is doing there. I don't know what what purpose Alex Wood serves at this point. Like neither of those guys are eating enough innings for them to be in there sucking up roster spots while Dave Roberts is running out of position players if they're not going to give if, you know if they're not going to give them length. And those are, you know, those are the lower leverage guys that you were talking about. I'd rather have more flexibility. You know, I was asking what Caleb Ferguson gives you uh, on Slack the other day, but you know, at least he can come in and get a lefty out and then come back and pitch the next day. I, you know, Urias is looking like a, a wasted roster spot right now, and I'd almost rather roll with Scott Alexander or roll with another position player, if or if, you know maybe carry a third catcher if if uh, um, the the position player substitutions are going to work out the way they have. Well, who needs a third catcher when you have emergency catcher Max Muncy in reserve? Who, I, according I'm so to happy Dave that Roberts, <laughs> yeah, according to Dave Roberts, the plan for game two, if it had gone into extras, which if not for Justin Turner's home run, very well could have happened with the Dodgers already having emptied out both their bench and their bullpen. The plan was to have Max Muncy be the catcher. He has never caught in the majors or the minors. And Rich Hill would have been pitching to Max Muncy. We would have had the the fabled Hill-Muncy battery, which would have been fantastic. And I'm sorry that we were deprived of that. But at the same time, the fact that that was even a realistic possibility speaks to either poor roster construction or overmanaging, possibly, or just a, a confluence of circumstances that used up players a lot more quickly than the Dodgers had planned. Yeah, I think more more the first than the second, but definitely both. I mean, when uh, I'm glad you saw that because I know how much you love emergency catchers. Um, yes, I found myself when when Turner hit the home run to not only tie the game but go ahead. Um, I was silently furious because I was really looking forward <laughs> to seeing how these two managers navigated. The fact that the Dodgers were going to have to use a pitcher in the ninth spot in the order behind Austin Barnes, who can't hit righties, uh, or you know how what was going to happen if uh, uh, the game went into extra innings, like Desarius come back, or you know eventually we learned that that Hill was going to come in, like that would have shaped up to be one of the most fascinating things because you know it invites intentional walks. Like how do you? How do you get Puig to the plate, for instance, with the game on the line when you could just intentionally walk him and get to Barnes and then the pitcher? You know, you essentially for the bottom half of the order have one out to play with. So it's it would have been really interesting. I'm really disappointed we didn't get to see it. I think if anything, what this series has proved, sorry, Ben, is that having no designated hitter is a lot of fun. Um, both for these strategic <laughs> reasons and also because Brandon Woodruff hit a home run and Wade Miley hit a double and had another hit. And obviously that is not what we're going to expect going forward, but it is a rather disappointing weekend for your column. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> if you do away with pitcher hitting, you do also do away with the Brandon Woodruff home run in the playoffs off Clayton Kershaw. Speaking of which, can we talk about Kershaw briefly? I know you wrote about him, Michael, and we're going to see him again in the series. So I thought we should sort of take the temperature of the Kershaw playoff narrative because 
At this point, I feel like we all sort of reflexively push back against the idea that Kershaw is in any way diminished in the playoffs because we like Clayton Kershaw and he's the best pitcher we've seen, at least on a career basis, probably. And I think in the past, he's been snake bitten in a lot of ways, whether it's with bullpen support, with having to start on short rest, he's kind of gotten a bad rap. But at the same time, if we're going to criticize the criticism of Clayton Kershaw, we should also police ourselves and make sure that we are not bending over backward to excuse him for his faults. So game one was kind of an interesting case study because on the one hand, the Dodgers let him down. Yasmani Grandal let him down repeatedly and got benched because of it, seemingly. So everything went against him. On the other hand, he didn't really help himself he in any way. Well. He didn't like, seem yeah. to have great command. He didn't really have great speed difference between his pitches. He wasn't missing bats. So it wasn't good Dodgers behind Kershaw, but it also wasn't good Kershaw. And at this point, I mean, this is not the time really when Kershaw is positioned to change the narrative about him in the playoffs because he's no longer the pitcher he was when he was struggling in earlier years. I think you have to acknowledge it no matter where you are. Like, And I think the playoff Kershaw, you know, capital P, capital K narrative is is mostly bullshit. Um, that he's one of the best pitchers in major league history. He's pitched very, very well in high pressure situations, including the, the league championship series and the world series in the past. And just weird stuff tends to happen to him. And I, you know, it's, it's unfair to a certain extent that he is so good. He's expected to be able to overcome all of that. But I also think it's, it's not fair to excuse, you know, he was bad on, on Friday and regardless of what Mm -hmm. happened to the defense. And you know, he got, you got a couple of bad breaks with Grandal and, you know, as hard a time as this is to be a Kershaw fan, it's an even harder time to be a Yasmani Grandal fan. Um, I'm mm-hmm. thinking about going into hiding over the offseason if if the Dodgers don't get out of get out of the series. Um, he's not the whole reason they lost game one. You know, the, the defense is the defense probably had more to do with it, but it. And I expect him to be fine if if he comes back and pitches game five, which everybody expects him to do. But I mean, this this was one of the worst starts of, of his postseason career, if not the worst. And I, I don't think it tarnishes his legacy. But I also kind of feel liberated at this point that nothing he does is going to matter up until he wins a ring. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I'm kind of checked out of, of relitigating this every time he starts because, you know, I'm comfortable with with my opinion of Kershaw as a pitcher including a, a postseason pitcher and he's like you said he's in a, a state of and you know Zach wrote about this on Friday too that he just sort of is where he is right now and you know I don't know that anybody's going to change your mind based on one or two starts I saw him pitch against Atlanta which was the best playoff start of his career if you look at like the fact that he went eight innings and he didn't allow a run etc but after that game, I wrote about how he succeeded in a very different way. Kershaw this year had his lowest strikeout rate since the start of this decade, uh, which looks even worse when you think about how the league-wide strikeout rate is rising. Uh, against the Braves, he only struck out three hitters, but because they were so aggressive, he was still able to succeed and keep them off balance. But I thought it might be a trickier challenge against Milwaukee, and that's kind of what we saw in Game 1. In that entire game, he only generated five swings and misses, not a single one on his slider, which is maybe his best pitch this season. So if they're able to wait him out, and there were a lot of two-strike counts where he just wasn't able to put them away, which doesn't look like the Kershaw we're used to. I wonder if it's like maybe a combination of playoff difficulties, but also that 
while he's still very good, he he isn't Pete Kershaw anymore. And against this specific opponent, that rears its ugly head. I'm tired of it. You know, it's <laughs> I, I like I just want it to stop. It's the same thing with the. I mean, it's not as bad as the A Rod thing, but it was just I don't know, people are gonna are gonna believe what they want to believe, and you know, I think it behooves us as as uh, analysts and, and observers to just sort of be honest about what we're seeing in front of us. So, you know, back then it meant that he was being put in tough situations and, and not overcoming difficult odds. And, you know, on Saturday, he just won that good. I mean, I didn't appreciate this uh, from the press box uh, on, on Friday, but I went going back and looking at the, at the video, like that pitch he threw to Woodruff is getting hit out almost every time, like 92 middle, middle, no movement, you know, you can't throw that to anybody. And, you know, it's funny that that happened, but it's a huge mistake and and defense or no defense. He's got to pitch better than that. So, yeah. Well, often you can get away with with that pitch to a <laughs> to a reliever who's hitting because <laughs> that's how uh, pitchers approach opposing pitchers oftentimes unless it's Madison Bumgarner or Michael Renzen or someone you just kind of lay it in there and usually they can't do much with it but Brendan Woodruff got a pretty solid swing. So if you do that to Woodruff, I I guess the Dodgers, if they actually have to pitch to Woodruff again in the series, will probably not just serve another pitch up on a tee for him. But, you know, we were just joking about Max Muncy, the emergency catcher. And at times in this series, and I know you wrote about it, Michael, it seemed like maybe playing emergency catcher is the only way that Max Muncy is going to get into the game. (laughs) He is a the Dodgers' best hitter this year, one of the very best hitters in the National League and in the majors, for that matter. And yet he is sitting quite often. And mm-hmm. as you showed in your article, you you kind of did almost a, a plus minus for Max Muncy, which is not something you see in baseball all that often. But basically, the Dodgers have been outscored when he's not in the game and they've outscored the Brewers when he is in the game, which, of course, he is only one small part of those teams at any one time. But Point is, you want to get your best bats in the game, and Dave Roberts is not really doing that with Muncie because he is adhering to the strict platoons, and he's playing a certified playoff hero, David Freeze, over Muncie in many cases, and the platoon advantage and disadvantage seems to make that make sense, but as you pointed out, Muncie was just so good this year that maybe it overrides the platoon effect, and you just kind of want him in there regardless. Well, I think it does override the platoon effect, but even if you don't, it's close. Like, it's not like he's 200 points of OPS better against lefties than freezes. It's like, it's like 20 or 30 points. So like if Dave, if Dave Roberts thinks that freezes is better against lefties than, than Muncie is, that's fine. But if you're going to do wholesale line changes like this, if you're going to send five guys over the boards at the same time in the fifth inning, and you're only carrying five bench bats, then I think freeze, just having freezes a body to come off come off the bench at the end of games is a bigger he's more valuable there than whatever uh whatever defense you know I, I think Freeze is a better defensive first baseman than Muncy certainly we saw that on the mm-hmm. uh, the play he made that got nullified by catcher's interference in game 1 which is incredible mm-hmm. and nobody will, will ever remember it because it, it didn't wind up counting um you know, there are things that Freeze is better at or you can make the argument that that Freeze is better at than Muncy, but this is the one of all the weird managerial moves. Starting freeze over Muncy is the only one that that I will say is 
and I don't know if you can hear me hitting the desk, but this is me putting my foot down. It's wrong. They need to start Muncie because of the added flexibility that having an extra bench back gives you at the end of the game. And also, I think Muncie's just a plain better hitter. And even if the the OPS lines up, Muncie's a better on-base guy than Freeze is. And just his ability to get on base is going to do that do so much more for them than the uh, Freeze's you know lower OBP, higher power uh, offensive profile. So that's... The that's the one thing that either manager has done so far this series that I just think is is an out and out mistake. Um, so let's look forward a little bit. Do we know? How, do we either of you guys have any idea how this how the series is going to go uh, in LA? I think my prior coming into the series, which I think I predicted Dodgers and six, is kind of still where it is. These first two games have been so even, but. I'm very curious to see how the Brewers' bullpen holds up over the three days in a row, um, especially with Wade Miley, who uh, you know had such a great start, would either have to come back on short rest or not pitch at all. And then I'm not entirely sure who pitches one of those other two games. But I also think from the other perspective, if you're going to learn something from the first two games, I think Dave Roberts has just more to learn about where he might have overstepped in the first two games whereas Craig Council like we said earlier kind of just has to keep throwing his best guys and hope it works out whereas Roberts might have actionable items to improve on like I wonder if Gio Gonzalez starts another game does Max Muncie enter at a different time I'm not entirely sure but Roberts has been so impressive to me over the last couple postseasons that I kind of have faith in him to figure it out yeah I felt much the same way as Zach coming into the series. And I think I probably feel the same way now. I just know that I'll be disappointed if Max Muncy does not catch in this series. Now that I know it's an option, <laughs> you can't just throw it out there and then not give it to me. So that's my main thing that I want to see. But among things that we will actually see, I am, of course, as everyone else is fascinated by how Council will navigate these middle three games with less rest. I mean, that was kind of the key, the thing that we pointed to coming into the series, that the bullpen approach is great if you have all these off days built into the schedule. When you don't, it can get a little dicey. So I am curious to see how that goes. But, you know, he has Julius Chassin, who is in theory, the Brewers' best starting pitcher, ready to go in game three, which is not often the case. And maybe he's not the best matchup in the world with the Dodgers because they've been successful against sliders and he's a slider-heavy guy, but he also has one of the best sliders in baseball. So maybe it doesn't apply to him. And then if you do go with a bullpen game in game four to some extent, well, in theory, that should work to the Brewers' advantage too because bullpen games make sense, at least on paper, when you have the personnel that they do. So. I think you kind of have to be happy with that split, even though once Wade Miley gives you that start, you want to win that game. Coming into it, I think you're okay with taking two because these next two matchups are not unfavorable for Milwaukee. Yeah, I I actually think that that three-game stretch could be a problem for, for the Dodgers more so than the Brewers because at least you know that Craig Council has seen this coming and he's come up with a plan. You, you know, he has an idea of how he's going to approach this, whereas if Hill gets knocked out early or runs up a big pitch count in game four, we've seen Roberts take Hill out after three or four innings over and over in the playoffs. If Bueller gets knocked around or if something bad happens to Kershaw again, how much do you trust Wood? How much do you trust Soria? And then you're working with a shorter bench. You know, I think we could see more Junior Guerra uh, from Milwaukee as this uh, series goes on. I think we're going to get they're going to get more than 
uh, a third of an inning out of Corbin Burns over the the next three games. As bad as he looked, I think I, I talked to Corbin Burns for the bullpen piece before game one, and he was talking about how he can't, he has to keep himself from getting too amped up coming out of the bullpen. Um, and I wonder if that was, if that was something that that bothered him in, in game two, if, if he was just overthrowing or something like that. Um, but the point is that the Brewers have gotten between the bullpen and Yelich going one for eight, they're getting less out of their best players, uh, than, than the Dodgers are right now. You know, we've seen big home runs by Machado and, uh, you know, Muncy's going, Muncy's reached base three times in, 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 uh, five trips to the plate and Turner obviously hit that enormous home run, um, I think there's more upside to the way the Brewers can play in games three, four, and five. And we'll see, you know, we'll see if it's, if the, which team the unpredictable, unpredictability favors. Cause I think there's a possibility that the Dodgers having fewer trustworthy relievers, as well as, you know, some of those guys have pitched. I don't know what you get out of Urias. I don't know what you get out of Wood at this point. And particularly if, if Hill goes short in game four, Dave Roberts is going to be in a tricky situation. Um, I think a blowout either way might actually help both of these teams just sort of reset. Cause this whole thing has just been so tense and white knuckled, uh, the whole way through. So as much as you guys feel good about your, uh, predictions before the series, I feel good about mine. I still think I still like Milwaukee in seven. We'll be right back with discussion of the American league championship series right after these messages. G Suite is a suite of cloud-based productivity tools that includes Gmail, Docs, Slides, Sheets, and Drive. These tools help improve your work life, both in terms of your experience and the outputs you create. Hence their new campaign, Make It With G Suite. You know when you add 20 identical versions of a document labeled Final and no clue which is the latest? So you make another version and name that one Final Final, right? Well, with G Suite by Google Cloud, a range of work apps like Gmail, Docs, and Slides let you make real-time updates to the same document without having to keep track of version after version of a product. And since all these tools are cloud-based, your whole team can access the same document and work on the same page at the same time. To find out more about G Suite's productivity tools, visit gsuite.com. That's gsuite.com. Make it with G Suite by Google Cloud. Ringer MLB Show is also brought to you by Burrow. Burrow makes clever, uncompromising furniture for modern life at home. And as the days get shorter and the weather gets colder, you know you're going to be spending more time at home and on the couch. So make sure that's time well spent on a sofa with Burrow. Burrow sofas are handmade in North Carolina with a sturdy, sustainably sourced hardwood and fabric that's naturally scratch and stain resistant. Burrow's designed for comfort with a low armrest that's the perfect height for resting your head. And Burrow sofas are exactly 17 inches off the ground because that's the average height from the bottom of a person's foot to the back of their knee. Burrow offers stress-free shopping. You can easily customize your sofa online without needing a trip to a dimly lit warehouse on the other side of town. And shipping is always fast and free. Now, I can tell you from experience that Burrow ownership is easy from the very beginning, from the moment the box arrives at your door. Our couch took 10 minutes to assemble as opposed to the last couch, which took like an hour and a half, two hours on your knees with an Allen wrench in hand. It's comfortable. It's easy to get up and down. You really feel that 17-inch ride height, and it's held up perfectly against my needy, hyperactive cat who absolutely cut the last couch to ribbons. So if all that sounds good, if you're thinking, hey, I want to burrow for myself, I have good news for you. You can get your living room ready for fall and save $75 on a new sofa by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. Now back to Ben, Zach, and the American League Championship Series. 
this is a, a series that's been weird in its own right, I guess. Uh, we saw Garrett Cole lose his command. We saw Alex Bregman uh, hit the the Red Sox first base, base coach with the throw. We saw uh, Christian Vasquez hit Joe West in the chest. Um, you know, Zach, what do you what do you take it out of the series so far? It kind of is similar to the Brewers Dodgers series in my mind in that the two games have been sort of mere opposites of the other in. Game one, the Astros clung to a slim lead through most of the game, and then in the ninth inning sort of broke it open against the second-level relievers in Boston's bullpen. The same thing happened for Boston in game two, where after trading the lead in the first few innings, they were up by one, and then they were able to get to some of the Astros' non-Presley McCullers relievers uh, and give Craig Kimbrell enough of a cushion to survive. I think, weirdly... The Red Sox should be satisfied with the split, even though they were the home team, even though they're going to Houston now, just because I think the Verlander-Cole duo gave Houston such an advantage in those games. And as we talked about in the preview pod, Evaldi versus Keuchel is not as big an advantage for Houston. I think Keuchel is the one... I don't think it's an advantage at all. Yeah, I think Keuchel is the one starter you can get to in the Astros rotation, and Evaldi has pitched great ever since joining Boston. So... I think it's definitely conceivable that Boston takes a 2-1 lead and they should, I think, take a lot of confidence away from what they showed in the first couple of games. Yeah, I agree. On paper, at least, the Red Sox have already used their two best regular season starters in this series and they split. But I think in this particular series, given how the Astros perform against left-handed pitching, the right-handed pitchers were always kind of the key. And, you know, you had Sale who... Clearly, we learned after his start was impaired by a stomach ailment. And as our friend Mallory Rubin said, looked even thinner than usual during that start for now we know why. But they got through that game and, you know, didn't win it. But then they come back and they win the David Price start. A team actually won a game started in the postseason by David Price. And it's funny because Price didn't pitch particularly well either, but he got an ovation coming off the mound instead of booze like last time, really solely because the Red Sox actually supported him with some offense, which has not been the case during his postseason career to this point. He's had DeGromian run support thus far in his postseason career. And so for once, the Red Sox actually hit and he left with a lead and won a game. And so now people are, are disposed to like him a little more. But they got through those two games and they split, even though they were facing two of the very best pitchers in baseball. And I agree, they should be somewhat satisfied with that. And now they have Evaldi, who was my key player pick coming into this series because of his right-handedness and being tough on righties and his recent success and his hard throwing. And then they have Porcello pushed back to game four because he pitched well out of the bullpen again. So I think they have to be pretty happy with how they line up now. And obviously it was good for them to see the offense come alive and for Mookie Betts to have his first really good game of the playoffs offensively because that's something that they can do too. I mean, we spent a lot of time praising the Astros and they deserve the praise, but the Red Sox are, if not as good, almost as good and they can put some runs together too. I still find the Astros offense a little bit more impressive. You saw that outburst against Cole, like they needed a throwing error. They needed a couple weird plays involving Marwin Gonzalez. I'm going to see that, that ball rolling along the top of the padding uh, out by the monster uh, over and over that. I mean, great for gift content, not so good for Marwin Gonzalez. Um, yeah. 
you know, but I, I think the, particularly after the way, so they're, yes, it's, it's great for the Red Sox. And I think they're, they're in, they're just fine right now. I think that that game three in Houston is one they can steal. And if they do that, then they just need, you know, they can lose game four no matter what and still come back and, and have either home field advantage or Chris sale in all three of the remaining games. And you still feel pretty good about that, um, about that scenario. So I think, you know, winning game, if, if they had come back to Houston down two Oh, they obviously would have been in gigantic trouble. Um, cause then you've essentially used up your margin for error. I still think the most, I still think the scariest thing that anybody exhibited is that Astros conga line at the end of game one. And that's something that, that I've talked about a lot. The team is constructed in such a way where yes, like Altuve is one of the best hitters in baseball and Bregman is going to be a top somewhere between third and eighth in, in MVP voting, but it's not just stars. It's that every one of the nine guys they sent out there can get on base. And when one of them gets going and it's almost contagious, the way they just follow one after another, after another, it's so hard to do is just follow up one single with another single or a walk or a double and just build you know, all before, before, you know it, they batted around by either definition and a one, one run lead has turned into a seven run lead and, you know, look no farther than, than the Milwaukee series for evidence of how important that is. If Milwaukee kept tacking on in either of those games, they would, they would be up to nothing. And it's the Astros can do that better than anybody else in baseball. And it's, it's less to me about their ability to come back from huge deficits, but their ability to solidify uh, small winning margins by just tacking on the best defense being a good offense. So I, I still think that's going to be what, what sets the Astros apart this series. I you know, think the Red Sox are are going to make it a lot more competitive than I think any of us uh, predicted last week, though. I will say, even looking at the the two teams' numbers right now, like the Red Sox, even after scoring seven runs in game two, their team slash line in the series is 188, 278, 250. It's which all is, clustered. Yeah, all clustered in that one inning against Cole. Exactly. Whereas the Astros have felt like they were threatening more regularly. It's also just been a weird series overall through the first two games. There have been more combined walks and hit by pitches than actual base hits. So I don't know if that's predictive going forward. Clearly, the Red Sox are afraid of Alex Bregman, who has reached base with a 700 on base percentage despite not getting a single hit. We I gotta read out the gotta read out the slash line. Zero 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 seven hundred zero 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 is <laughs> remarkable. Kind of, uh, it's one of those things where you you see the 700 and you think, oh, that must be his OPS. And then realize no, it's just as on base percentage. Uh, but well, it well, is OPS <laughs> yes. too, actually. <laughs> but I think that might reflect something about their approaches and the sustainability of this going forward. Of course, with the caveat that it's a short series and anything can happen. Yeah, it's funny. You know, there's been study after study done over the decades about whether lineup balance matters, whether all else being equal, it's better to have your hitters distributed really evenly up and down the lineup, or whether it's better to just have them all clustered together and then just have a, a weak bottom of the order. And study after study has shown that there's really no difference. There's no advantage to lineup balance. And really, in this case, you could say that all else is equal because I think the Astros and the Red Sox literally had the same weighted runs created plus in the regular season. 
But you're right, it is more impressive visually and sort of scary, certainly, as you're watching. And there's really no respite. I mean, especially when guys like Maldonado are are getting hits for the Astros, there's just there's no place where you can really take a break. And so even if the stats say it doesn't make a difference when a lineup like the Astros is functioning top to bottom, it is really, really powerful and it can put runs on the board extremely quickly. And just as a spectator, you kind of always have the sense that they're threatening. There's no Christian Vasquez or, or Sande Leon there where you can just kind of take a break. How valuable would, let's let's say average, uh, Bregman is an above average defensive third baseman, an above average base runner. If he hit 0, 700 0 for an entire season, He'd be the most valuable player in baseball, right? I think so. I mean, just the the impact of us. It's so weird to to think that, it, it, you know, as a guy who who's slugging nothing, but, you know, just the impact of a 700 on base percentage is, is almost unfathomable. Um, the other sort of hypothetical question that I wanted to get at is, let's say that, that Bregman's fly ball to end game two sneaks over the monster. Um, I think Ben Attendee said it came back to him a little bit. Let's say the Astros tie it and go on to win game two. I, I was thinking about Dan Zimborski said when Lorenzo Cain, um, Dan Zimborski runs the Zips project, projection system, said when Lorenzo Cain robbed, uh, robbed that uh, home run ball early in game two, it had something like a 5% effect on the Brewers' win probability for the entire series. You know, And I'm, I'm thinking about a, a similar counterfactual. Like if the Astros go on to win game two, how – differently are we looking at this at this series um you know is it are would the red sox be out of it you know and are you know where do you feel they sit right now is it a coin flip is it you know where where does this stand and where would it have stood if if this was oh two instead of one one well first off i'll say bregman himself said he almost got it he gave a quote after the game where he said you could see him wince right after he hit the the ball he said right away i knew i missed it if i got it it would have been on the street behind fenway park so bregman (laughs) continues to to feel himself in these playoffs (laughs) but i think if you look at just how much this matters like the dodgers uh, if you go by some of the advanced win probability metrics, like Justin Turner's home run to flip game two from a loss into a lead, uh, increased the Dodgers' odds of winning not just the Brewer Series, but the World Series by seven percentage points. So if you take Bregman's home run, and yes, that wouldn't have won them the game, but I think I would have certainly given them the advantage in the rest of that game, given the strength of their bullpen, that would have created either similar ripples or larger ripples, uh, I still think Houston has the advantage going forward. Even though I'm a little concerned about Keigel in Game 3, I would give Charlie Morton the advantage in Game 4. I think he's a really strong starting pitcher. I'm not 100% sure what Chris Sale is going to bring in Game 5. We're right back at that talking point we had before the DS against the Yankees. And as we've been saying, although Boston managed to get the split, Houston's lineup just looks more imposing going forward. I think their bullpen looks more imposing going forward. So Boston kind of needs a couple things to go right, all of them to go right to win this series, whereas the Astros can have Garrett Cole falter and still be in pretty good position. They can have one of their top hitters falter and still be in pretty good position, whereas the Red Sox right now, like they need J.D. Martinez to start hitting, or that lineup has a really big hole in the middle. 
Should we talk briefly about Craig Kimbrell, who so far this postseason, he has pitched in three games and he has allowed at least a run in all of those games and threatened to allow more. So on the one hand, he is one of the most dominant closers in recent years, not quite as dominant during this regular season, but still very effective. And, you know, he's gotten the save each time that he's been asked to get one this postseason, but he's come as close as you can possibly come to not getting it. And if the Red Sox keep giving him cushions of three runs when he comes in, then that's great. Then he has a cushion, he has a buffer to to play with there. But it just keeps looking like his command is off. He's usually a, a high fastball pitcher, and he's just not getting the fastball up. He seems to be throwing it more over the heart of the plate. His breaking ball, just he doesn't seem to be able to put that where he wants to either. And so he just keeps getting very sweaty and throwing lots of pitches that aren't necessarily getting chases, except when John Stanton is at the plate. So it's sort of scary. It's, it's kind of the same thing we talked about with Jeffress, where you trust the guy who got you here, but you're not feeling really comfortable watching him right now. I think the difference with Kimbrell and Jeffress is, I you know, as much as I like Jeffress's game, I always sort of felt like he was playing a little bit over his head uh, this season. Like, he's not a true talent 129 ERA guy. Um, and he always, it, there's always just something a little imprecise, I guess, about him. And just his fastball and his curveball and the different ways he can attack hitters is just been so it's been so formidable it hasn't mattered a whole lot but Jefferson's has never been as good as Kimbrell and I think you can see that the difference between you know we talked about the location the the breaking ball like he threw he threw something uh last night that just like did not resemble a Craig Kimbrell breaking ball I can't remember him ever like not getting around his curveball like that before and you know, when you could see stuff like that, I think that's we don't want to panic over small sample size stuff, but I think you could see elements to Kimbrell's game that are falling apart a little bit. And what's Alex Cora gonna do? Not run the best closer of his generation out there for for key moments? Like I I don't know what the alternative is until he actually blows not just one, but he has to blow a couple of these, I think, before he stops getting the ball in the ninth. And by that point, you know, the series might be over. But Kimbrell was sort of in that zone for a while where he was so automatic that I would just write off the game whenever he came in. And now he's the most exciting pitcher in baseball. I I can't remember the last time (laughs) I had as much fun as watching that game four against the Yankees. I look back on Ken Giles last year who ran into a similar situation with Houston where he was their closer and he was very reliable until he wasn't. Uh, But A.J. Hinch allowed him to pitch Seven games last year, he allowed runs or multiple runs in six of them until he stopped pitching. That was after game four of the World Series. So I think Kimbrell certainly has longer leash to go. And frankly, the Red Sox don't have the luxury, I think, of playing around with him because although Matt Barnes and Ryan Brazier have pitched well, if you push them up in the leverage chain, then that also brings up Heath Hembree and Brandon Workman who were worked in the ninth inning of game one and that doesn't really allow given their roster construction any room to meddle with what's gotten them here so they the problem is they don't have a Lance McCullers to turn into a four inning closer right Eduardo Rodriguez uh, could possibly be that guy but I don't trust a left-handed pitcher going 
through this lineup top to bottom. He gave up the giant Gary Sanchez home run in Fenway in the the Yankees series and uh, doesn't inspire much confidence against the likes of Altuve and Bregman and Springer. All right, well, let's let's end with this. I think we all think that both of these series are going to go to at least six games. There's going to be at least one more travel day. If there's one series that you think will not make it to six games, which one would you pick? I guess I would say probably the Dodgers-Brewers series, just because I think there's more of a, a mismatch in talent there, and maybe there's more that could potentially go wrong with the Brewers' strategy, which you know, in theory, works pretty well, worked pretty well all season long, but it's it's sort of a, a high variance approach. And that makes sense for them because they're the underdogs, but that also means that it can go spectacularly wrong. So all it takes is one of the many relievers in their chain to blow up and have a bad inning. And that undoes all the good that the other guys do. So I would say that if they run into trouble with the three games back to back to back days, that could become an issue and and they're more likely to just be wiped off the face of the earth. But I don't expect that to happen to any of these teams. I would uh, counter you for, I think, the first time, Ben. I'll stick with Astros uh, <laughs> because if the Astros do win game three, I think they have a fairly clear pitching advantage in game four. And then, you know, who knows what's going to happen with Sale. Justin Verlander has obviously been incredible throughout his entire tenure with the Astros, and he would be slated for game five. I also wonder if, like, Craig Kimbrell blows a save, another one, and the Red Sox bullpen is taxed. I think they have, again, just less room for, for less margin for error than the Astros bullpen does. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Zach here. I think the, it's not that I, I think the, uh, Red Sox are more likely to completely fold than the Brewers because you know that like you, everything you said about the high variance strategy is absolutely true and there's a, that possibility. But if it if it works once, they go back to Milwaukee out of those three games. And I think the Astros more than any of the other three teams in the playoffs have the ability to just overwhelm to just be so good it doesn't matter what what the other team brings up against them um so i think that they've got the possibility particularly you know i think they're the best team left in the playoffs and they're playing the next three games at home and you know that might be reductive but i think it it fits with uh with all the other evidence here so we've uh moved nothing both both the series split in the first leg uh none of us are changing any of our predictions i don't think uh so good let's uh let's hope we learn something by Uh, by the time we reconvene later this week. But until then, thanks for joining me, guys. Happy to. Enjoy the games. That'll do it for this edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks to Ben Lindbergh and to Zach Cram, who showed up and tried to steal my outro. Uh, Thanks to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thanks to Max Muncy, Corbin Burns, and Craig Kimbrell for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time.
Navy Federal has a mission to put members first by making their financial goals a priority. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits to help you and your family accomplish your life missions like a full suite of financial products designed to fit your needs, 24-7 live support, and access to more than 300 branches on or near military bases. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app. Message and data rates may apply.